0: So, welcome, Eddie, and I'm so glad you took the time today to join us. And our first question for you is why did you become a physical therapist?
1: So, I was an athlete in high school, and I experienced problems with my knees, which, you know, partly were due to things that I didn't know I haven't learned a whole lot about later on in PT school. But um, when I was thinking about careers, I originally thought that I would want to go on to med school. And then when I was actually doing my volunteer work over the summers prior to actually applying to college um, as part of my high school requirements, I was following a physician and realized that the interaction that I had imagined would be between a physician and a patient was really so brief and didn't seem like it was very, wasn't fulfilling from the perspective of either the patient or the physician, at least from my perspective as a high school student. And so I started thinking about what other uh, professions might be available to me. And um, then my coach suggested that I go see a physical therapist for my knee, and I actually had never, I didn't even know physical therapy was a profession, but that prompted me to go to seek physical therapy services and realized, wow, this is a whole profession that has to do with the body and being able to help people to move better, where you actually have time to develop a relationship with them Mm -hmm. and um, have a helping relationship that is built on knowing somebody as opposed to just running in and out of a room. Mm -hmm. So that was the first inkling.
0: So when you graduated from the University of Miami with your physical therapy degree, what direction did you take? Did you start out right in neuro or something else? Yeah,
1: so I had been hired prior to graduation by a brand new rehab hospital that at that time was part of a corporation called um, Rehab Hospital Corporation, which was PT-owned. It was a brand new hospital that was being built in uh, probably 30 miles from where the university was. And um, it was just opening up. And so we had no services, no policies and procedures. And I was put in charge of the spinal cord injury program, developing the spinal cord injury program. And I was a new grad, (laughs) so I had to go to a lot of continuing education courses and learn about spinal cord injury and um, really developed a, a love for it. And it turns out that because the hospital was in such, it was because it was brand new and it was still being built while we were trying to develop the services, I worked as a per diem PT at a local county hospital. And one of my very first patients happened to be a young man with physical the- with uh, spinal cord injury. Let me say that again. One of my very first patients happened to be a young man with spinal cord injury, and he was about my age. So I was a brand-new PT grad, so uh, you know, it was a bachelor's degree. So I was about 22 at the time, and he was also around that age. I think he was 23, but he had a family already. You know, and I, and here he is in this time with the road arrest beds, which you probably mm-hmm. remember, probably not you, Dana, mm-hmm. but, um, and I kept, I remember thinking, gosh, there's, if there's anybody that I can help as a physical therapist, you know, it will be this young man who, you know, he is here with a spinal cord injury and has his whole life ahead of him. How was his outcome? I actually, because I was only a per diem, I didn't get to stay there very long. Mm-hmm. And um, I wish I knew w- what transpired with him, but I, don't, I really don't know. But it was my first encounter with a person with spinal cord injury, and um, it really hit home that this person could potentially live with a disability for an entire lifetime. You know, and the thing with spinal cord injury is that the the pop the proportion of people who have spinal cord injuries relative to other things like stroke and Parkinson disease is are, are so small. But when you think of the time that they're going to live with their disability, in, especially when so many you know are injured young, it we physical therapists can have such a potential for really make a difference in their lives.
0: So at some point along that time you decided to go back for a master's degree and you picked an interesting master's degree. Yeah,
1: Yeah, so the way that happened was I was with this brand new hospital for a while and um, I really enjoyed it but I was a new grad and so I didn't really have a sense of the real world of physical therapist practice and when we we started when we opened I probably had three patients, you know, <laughs> <laughs> wow. and then, um, and then the first, so in that first year or so, my, uh, my patient load grew and grew and grew. And it got to the point where I had to like dovetail patient times. And I was, you know, that was just very shocking <laughs> to me. I'm sure now new grads coming out, they're really prepared for that. I was not prepared for that. And, um, at, and so I was really thinking, wow, is this the way physical therapist practice really is? And, you know, I feel like I'm not having enough, I am not have a whole hour to spend with each patient, you know, which I had in the beginning. Um, and then I had an invitation to, uh, be con- to consider another position that opened up where I would have the opportunity to do research. And it was at um, a clinic that was affiliated with the University of Miami, where they uh, treated primarily people who had pain, which, you know, has their own neurological component to pain. And the opportunity to do research really was enticing to me. And so I took that opportunity, and I went and worked at this University of Miami-affiliated clinic. And... um, then started getting interested in why people re-injure themselves, and my I had a p- hypothesis at that time that it was it was a neurological issue, that it was um, due to the spindle not being the muscle spindle sen- that senses length not um, getting reset after an injury and giving the person inappropriate information, so that they were doing things with their bodies, they were putting their bodies at risk without really getting that feedback from their nervous system that they were putting their bodies at risk. So that's a complicated hypothesis. <laughs> as
0: you Sounds can like neuroplasticity, last <laughs> yeah, <DNA. laughs>
1: But so, I mean, and my, you know, my understanding of the muscle spindle at that time was based on my bachelor's as a physical therapist student, you know, understanding. But nevertheless, I decided that would be something I wanted, a question that I wanted to pursue. And because the clinic that I was affiliated with was affiliated with the University of Miami, and um, there were a, a number of people who were part of the that clinic who were doing research as part of a, an engineering program, the industrial engineering program at the University of Miami, because a lot of the patients that we saw were people who had low back pain from industry-related injuries. You know, so they would had workplace injuries. And so... They, I I was talking to one of the professors in that program about, you know, this idea of repeated low back pain, a repeated low back injury, and, you know, is this something that I could study as part of, you know, a program that was available in the School of Industrial Engineering. But I didn't want to become an engineer. I was really interested in research and learning more about the research process and research design, and it just so happened that that... They had a program that was a dual degree program, industrial engineering and epidemiology, which was a really good fit for my interests and where I saw my career in research going. So
0: did you do research on the muscle spindle? <laughs> yeah, I, Yes.
1: So it's very difficult to do research on the muscle spindle in a human population, <laughs> as you can imagine. So essentially, the study that I did was to assess whether people who had a history of low back Injury and low back pain had a, a sense of proprioception about where their bodies were in space when they were doing a forward-leaning movement. You know that one, like like what would one would do if they were picking up a box or something like that. So that was my, that was my master's thesis project. And and as you can imagine, measuring forward lean in um, people is has is associated with a lot of variability, and I did find a statistically significant difference
0: <laughs> of what degree <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs>
1: between my non disabled population and my um, back pain population and so yeah clinical meaningfulness hmm but it it really what it did make me realize is that This was probably not a question that I was going to be able to answer in an industrial engineering program. (laughs) So that's what made me start thinking about the the Ph.D. coming on.
2: That's a nice segue into my question is, was your master's thesis experience, Mm -hmm. did it kind of cause your appetite to then attain a Ph.D. at um, Washington University in St. Louis? Yes,
1: it absolutely did. So that was really, I mean, what I ended up doing as part of my master's work was a more biomechanical question, and so I had, I felt like I had reasonably strong biomechanics skills, but um, from the electrophysiologic perspective, I feel like I really still had a gap. And so um, when I was considering what PhD programs w- would be a good fit, the program, an in, interdisciplinary program in movement science at Washington University in St. Louis, has these three different tracks. You know where you are. You take core courses in neurophysiology, in physiology, and in biomechanics, and so that seemed like a really good fit for my interests and my background and experience. So, and I also had when I was a student, a bachelor student in PT, we at the University of Miami had a research affiliation with WashU, where you could go in as one of as you had you had to do an acute care affiliation, a. A rehab affiliation and you had to you could pick a specialty area of your choosing and I chose research and I actually went to Wash U, and I worked with Barbara Norton and Shirley Sarman so and Tony Delito was there at the time and yeah so I got to you know really see how people who have really made meaningful contributions to our research literature I got to work with them as a bachelor student mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so and Steve Rose who was one of my my subjects in the Study that I did as a PT student when I was there at Wash U. So that really whetted my appetite for research. Mm-hmm.
2: Can you tell us about your work with turtles?
1: Yeah. I would <laughs> love to talk about turtles. I <laughs> <never
2: was. laughs> Who so, the turtles? Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, as part of my um, mm-hmm. core courses as a, P, a new PhD student in my first year, I had a phys- uh, neurophysiology course. And so, you know, we learned these days, neurophysiology, neuroscience in general is really, really focused on the cellular molecular ends of the spectrum. And it's really interesting to me because that's kind of the, the pendulum started with system, systems neuroscience and really has swung to the cellular molecular. And I really hope that it's some way swinging back. Mm-hmm. But um, in that first year course, I learned a lot about cellular and molecular mechanisms and channels and receptors. And then we had a lecture from a, a Paul Stein, Dr. Paul Stein, who was studying central pattern generated behaviors in turtles. And so he came in and he uh, was demonstrating with the turtle that this turtle who had, that had a complete spinal cord transection was able to generate these very beautiful, elegant scratching behaviors. And that were very specific to the site where you stimulated and demonstrating the, the, you know, intelligence, if you will, of the spinal cord and how it's able to take sensory information and transform it into a motor output that's appropriate for the sensory information. I'm like, oh my God, that is magic. Yeah. I have to, mm-hmm. that's what I have to study. Not really thinking very much about whether or not you know, a physical therapist with a background in studies of turtle scratching behavior was going to be something that was going to be, you know, get me a faculty job or a postdoctoral position later on, you know, which, you know, my colleagues who were with me at the same time, they were getting invited to give talks, and I was not getting invited to give talks at PT schools, and in fact, very sad part of my history, I... um, I had I sent my an abstract to the WCPT, which at that time was they were having a conference in um, DC, and I had never heard of anybody who had had their abstract declined by the WCPT, but my abstract was declined by the WCPT, so (laughs) a very sad part of my early experience. <laughs> but
2: PhD now you send them your C V and you Don't you wish yeah. you would have
0: it? So have you done anything with the with the central pattern generator uh work in humans?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a great question. So so when I finished when I was so before I finished my PhD I started you know, having discussions about the relevance of this work to humans, and at that time, you know, the, the common wisdom was that over the course of evolution, that the pattern generators related to locomotion had added, migrated to the brainstem level. And um, so that would suggest that they really didn't have much relevance in people with spinal cord injury, for example, for assisting with, you know, these innate motor behaviors like locomotion. But I was at a um, conference in, I'm pretty sure it was in Ventura, California, and I was pouting to my fellow, you know, student attendees about how nobody was asking me to give talks. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, what was the relevance of pattern generators to humans? And someone said to me, there is an investigator here who has a manuscript with him that he has just submitted to Brain? And it is about involuntary stepping in a human with spinal cord injury. You need to talk to him. And I thought, oh. and wow. I found him, and he indeed had just submitted this manuscript to Brain. He had this very elegant evidence. That this involuntary stepping behavior was actually occurring at the level of the spinal cord. He's he done a series of very well controlled experiments on this as as a case study to demonstrate that the they, that the behaviors are being generated from spinal cord circuits and um, that they were being turned on by the very same things that we know from the literature turns them on in animals. And I was like, oh my gosh. You're my, you're my hero. And I went to do my postdoc with him. So I did my postdoc with him, Dr. Blair Colancey, at the MIMA Project to Cure Paralysis.
0: Wow, that's
1: fascinating.
0: What a coincidence. Yeah,
1: yeah, it really was a coincidence. Because if I had waited for the paper to actually come out, I probably would have picked another postdoc. Because at the same time, there was a, there was a person who was working on central pattern-generated bladder function mm. vo- for mm. voiding in humans, and I was having discussions with him about going to do a postdoc mm. with him. And um, walking behavior is certainly much, is much more relevant to my interests as a physical therapist than, I mean, bowel and bladder function is absolutely critical for people with spinal cord injury, but my right. expertise and background is much more suited to walking function. And so I went to study walking in people with spinal cord injury as part of my postdoctoral work.
0: So how did you end up at Shepherd?
1: Oh, gosh. So I was at the Miami Project for, you know. So I started my postdoc there. And then Dr. Colancy took another faculty position in Rochester at, um, in uh, upstate New York. Mm-hmm. And I think it's Upstate Medical University. It's the one in Rochester. I should probably know that, but I don't. I think that's where George Polk is actually now. I think he's at the same institution where George is. Anyway, it's in Rochester, New York. And he uh, and so the Miami Project said, wow, you know, we really are interested in the studies that you have been doing together. Would you be willing to stay on um, and continue your, the work that you're doing? And I also had an appointment at the physical therapy, in the physical therapy program, the Department of Physical Therapy. And so, I mean, I had already a very strong community there in the physical therapy program in Miami, and now the opportunity to really have a lab at the Miami Project to cure paralysis. So it was a really, a natural fit. And I actually stayed there for, you know, it was almost 20 years that I was uh, at the Miami Project between the PT program and the Miami Project together as as joint appointments. And so it was really very, very productive and useful. And during that time, over the course of that time, Although my work started with this interest in using central pattern-generated behaviors to contribute to walking function and see if we could um, make the pattern generator more robust and therefore improve walking function that way, over that time, I really started to realize that while you can make the pattern generator robust by treadmill-based training, it doesn't really seem like it translates all so well to overground training, and that the training piece as opposed to the pattern-generator piece, is the piece that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And that neuroplasticity that comes from training applies not only to walking, but certainly to hand function as well. And then about the same time where I was starting to think about that, I came to a CSM programming and heard about um, the neuroplastic changes that happen in people with spinal cord injury in the brain. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, are you kidding, people? who have spinal cord injury have their brain reorganized in a way that's very much like what we see in people with stroke. And so maybe if we can get the brain to be better organized, maybe the brain can be more effective at sending information down through the remaining spinal cord pathways, even if there's nothing we can do about the spinal cord pathways themselves. And so that started in a whole new area of research now in, in upper extremities. And then um, got I had been asked by Shepard Center several times to consider when they created the position of director of Spionic Injury Research and then um, a couple times after that when they were looking for someone to fill that role and I always thought, "Mm, you know, I have such great support here in this academic institution and Shepard is not affiliated with an academic institution. Mm -hmm. And so I you know, I said thank you very much. It's a lovely clinical institution, but I don't know that I could really do my work there. And then I did a sabbatical in Barcelona. So I spent almost a year at the Gutmann Institute in Barcelona, right outside of Barcelona. And that is basically just like Shepherd Center. It's almost the same number of beds and they see spinal cord injury they people see people with spinal cord injury people with stroke and so it's very very similar and i they had a very robust research department a research enterprise that was very good at getting grants from the eu and i thought wow you really can do good research at a clinical center and not only that you have people much it's much easier to be able to recruit people because you have them in center and they mm-hmm. you can you know discuss their pro- your projects with them And so, um, when I came back to Miami from my my sabbatical year, I was just starting to do, I was finishing up actually a big um, trial of hand function when I started to really have difficulty with recruitment. And prior to that time, I never had difficulty with recruitment because I was studying locomotor training during a time when that was a new thing, you know, and I would get people come from all over the world who want, they'd come to Miami in the winter and spend three months participating in my 12-week locomotor training study, you know, and didn't have any trouble with recruitment. But when you're talking about recruiting people with tetraplegia, people with tetraplegia, typically can't just fly across country or come to stay with you by themselves. They have to have a caregiver or a spouse come with them. And so it's a much higher hurdle for people to be able to come and participate. And that study was under-recruited. And I really started thinking, if I really want to um, pursue hand-functioning training as a as a line of research and identify ways to make the best use of what we I know as a physical therapist and about neuroplasticity and neuromodulation, I'm probably gonna to need to find a place where I have access to a clinical population. And then Shepherd called me again and um, I said, Well let's yeah. let's have a discussion you know, and and in fact, so I, I moved to Shepherd in twenty fourteen and uh, I took an NIH grant with me that I had gotten at the Miami Project, which was related to whole body vibration. And um, my first grant application as a Shepherd's, um employee was related to hand function. And it was with the Department of Defense, with one um, congressionally-directed um, CDMRP, congressionally-directed CD, congressionally medical research program. And... Um, we did that as a pragmatic clinical trial where people were divided into groups and everybody got hand training, um, you know, focusing on things that one would do in a typical day. One group got sham brain stimulation, one group got real transcranial direct current stimulation, another group got peripheral nerve stimulation. All things that are clinically accessible because my lab is really dedicated to things that can be used by lots of people as opposed to things that are really expensive and people can't access. And so uh, we were over-recruited. We had to request to DOD to expand our subject pool because there were so many people who wanted to participate and the therapists were so excited to be able to participate in research. And so it it really was a great demonstration that you can do really good research in a clinical setting. Mm
2: -hmm. That's such a beautiful story. Because we were talking about kind of the gaps in in years, and you know, I thought with the Miami project, there's got to be something that called you to Shepherd Center. Um, and the, I mean, there, that's yeah. what it is. There was a calling for you to go to this place where perhaps there wasn't what you thought was there that you needed, but you didn't need it. Yeah, you could still create. Yes, it.
1: absolutely. And I think over the years, my My research has. So, I first started off, I think, like most people, I was very enamored with high tech measurement and high tech interventions. And what I realized is that even if those high tech interventions are useful, they're not going to be accessible to the vast majority of people. If you need, you know, expensive equipment that takes a lot of training to do, and it's difficult to, um, and, and the person can't access it frequently enough to actually get neuroplasticity. You know, you can have an intervention that, you know, you do for a week and you show this valuable neuroplasticity, but unless the person can retain those changes and capitalize on those changes and has access to it, they're not going to, they, they likely won't retain them. And so doing things that are accessible to p- people who are working in the clinic, physical therapists, occupational therapists, I think is really critical, mm-hmm. you know.
2: That's a nice segue into my next question. The um the two thousand thirteen study that you did with operant conditioning. Yes. Um, looking at walking function, I believe mm-hmm. in looking at should therapists be spending more time on voluntary control or, you know, decreasing tone or something yes. like that. Can you um kinda touch on what your findings were and whether your hypothesis was was
1: what you thought it was. Yeah, so that was, that's a great question, and I want to point out that that's the work uh, that was the PhD work of Kath, Kathleen Manella, who was a PhD student in my lab, and she did excellent work, and she's actually a very, very good therapist as well. Um, so we were very interested, you know, as part of your preparation to be a PhD student, you'd read all the literature, and you'd talk about things that are exciting, and one of the things that was exciting to us was this evidence from the literature that through operant conditioning, you could take a, the stretch reflex, which we think of as, you know, a, it's, a, it's a monosynaptic. How flexible can it be? How amenable can it be to learning? But the work um, of Jonathan Wopah had shown us since the late 80s that it, it really was amenable to modulation. Um, modulation related to training, and that that even that very simple circuit could be upregulated or downregulated, and then Steve Wolf and Rick Siegel did a really interesting study where they uh, tried to do a similar thing in the biceps of individuals with um, who had spasticity of the upper extremity, and so there was. prior work that had tried to translate this to humans, we were really interested in, from the functional perspective, what does it mean? And so we were interested in identifying what was the functional relevance of training that circuit. And, you know, you know, in the PT literature there's this long debate about should we focus on decreasing spasticity? Mm -hmm. I mean, is that a valuable focus of our work, or should we just work on increasing you know, motor output and the spasticity will take care of itself. You know, and I hope we come back to that question, so I think that's an interesting question too. Uh-huh. Um, and so we said, okay, well let's let's see if we can do a study where we assess the value of those both those approaches in kind of an isolated system. And the isolated system that we're thinking about is just, you know, what's going on with spasticity in the plantar flexors. And of course we know that by Um, whenever you activate the antagonist, um, so in this case the tibialis anterior, you have the circuit which inhibits the agonist, which is the thing you want to focus on. So it makes sense that even if your focus is on decreasing spastic responses in the plantar flexors, you could access that by focusing on activation of the tibialis anterior. And so that was what we did. And it was a very small study because it was very, very time-consuming. And people It was 12 weeks, three, three days a week. People did 300 repetitions of this behavior, and they were in one, one of two groups. And one group was in a, where we gave them biofeedback of their reflex response in response to a stimulation pulse of the tibial nerve to activate the soleus. And their goal was to decrease the amplitude of the reflex response. That was one group and then the other group was the um, tibialis activation group where their goal was to reach a certain level of EMG activity and then each time they came in we looked at the prior the mean of their prior responses and we increased the goal so that they had to try and change increase the either the activation of the TA or the deactivation reflex deactivation of the soleus and um, in both cases the reward for reaching the target was that great old PT reward of, yeah,
0: great job.
1: And so what we found was, we had a very small, it were very small, so it was like eight subjects per group. So it was really too small to have statistically significant differences. So we were really looked at what were the effect sizes of the changes from pre to post in the measures that we were interested in, and those included functional measures like walking, they included um, behavioral measures like toe tapping and reflex-related measures and um, biomechanical measures of spasticity. And essentially we found that if we looked at the number of uh, changes that had a a meaningful difference in effect size, which is 0.5, which we chose as our measure of effect size, If we looked at the number of measures that we were interested in that had a meaningful difference in the effect size, it was clear that the TA up-training group was the one that won. And these were measures that included not only changes in the reflex excitability of the soleus, but also functional measures that were related to walking and plantar flexor activation. And so that was a cue to us that, you know, Just if we're just interested in reducing spasticity for the purpose of changing motor behavior, we're probably better off focusing on improving the motor behavior. But going back to the question that kind of started this was, Mm -hmm. you know, people take they they take anti spasticity meds not just because they want to improve their mode of behavior, just for comfort, for cosmesis, for, you know, being able to roll over in bed. And so I do think that there's a place for physical therapists to be active about um, applying anti-spasticity interventions like prior to treatment to be able to allow the person to make the most use of the training. And that kind of thing, and for teaching people what they can do at home, so they, you know, we have a, we just did a large survey that had about seventeen hundred total responses, which I part I talked a little bit about today. And um, a lot of people who have spasticity um, are don't want to take medication, and of those who do take medication, a lot of them say it doesn't help them, you know,
0: or the effect diminishes over time. Yes,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I'm assuming in all of your cases with spasticity, they have been in spinal cord injuries, as opposed to yes. stroke populations. Yes, all also. of my
1: work, all my career, has really been in spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm. I have no credibility in <laughs> the
0: neurologic <laughs> population. So, have you thought about doing any uh, uh, research into Are you having neuroplastic changes in the brain with all these uh, with these interventions peripherally?
1: Yes. So in fact, um, we've published a number of studies where we have, particularly as it relates to hand function, Mm -hmm. because um, the hand function is under such high levels of cortical control. So we have published a couple of studies looking at cortical plasticity and changes in the motor map that are associated with hand training. Mm -hmm. And clearly we've shown that you can change the cortical map with hand training and also the excitability of those cortical responses cortically evoked mo- muscle responses with training. So
0: this morning you, um, you spoke about doing uh, transcranial stimulation as well as whole body vibration and talked about some research you have in progress right now. Can you just give us a quick summary of uh, kind of like your concluding slides from this morning?
1: Hmm. So we have... Um, the studies that we have where we have tried to look at different therapeutic interventions to address spasticity Mm -hmm. have included both peripheral stimulation, transcutaneous spinal cord stimulation, and cortical stimulation, as well as um, other types of probably more conventional interventions that physical therapists do, like stretching and continuous passive movement. And we have been interested in... Doing things that a f- person can actually do at home, or at le- the very least, can do in the clinic, and the uh, preliminary results from our s- single-session study, where we had the same individual partake in each one of these interventions with a week of washout in between, indicates that there clearly is a value to stretching, which is like yay, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> um, and there um and people report in our this large survey that i discussed you know that i touched on that they that's one of the primary things that they use to try to to self-manage their spasticity so it's great to have that evidence that actually has an effect at least on the stretch reflex circuit you know which is kind of as we talked about this morning is one of many measures that we should consider because spasticity is such a very complex phenomena that it just one measure is not going to capture everything about it but um, in addition to that we found that continuous passive movement and transcranial direct uh, sorry transcutaneous spinal cord stimulation had both immediate effects and effects that were persistent at least 45 minutes later and so that was a really important finding and we are now pursuing um, further studies related to that focusing on trans cutaneous spinal cord stimulation simply because by person by report of our participants that's the one that had effects that lasted later into the evening another thing that really was important that came out of that study is that the sh- the that inactivity really makes spasticity worse mm-hmm. our sham condition was having people lay supine with sham electrical stimulation on so they thought they were getting an intervention but they really weren't and um, what we found is their spasticity got much worse after the, uh, just laying still for the treatment period, which was 30 minutes. And so that really says that just activity and things that we do as part of our physical therapy are really valuable for decreasing spasticity. And so um, an important point about that is that, for example, the transcutaneous spinal cord stimulation, those individuals had to be in that same position while they were getting the transcutaneous spinal cord stim. So the tr- transcutaneous spinal cord stim had an effect that not only overcame the effects of being immobilized, but actually was was more than just baseline, it really had a, a meaningful effect on their spasticity. And
0: I also recall talking about sit-to-stand. Yes. It's also improving. I was so glad to hear yeah. that yeah. Uh, movement-related interventions seem to be probably the longer-lasting and more efficacious yeah. ways of doing that. Yeah,
1: that's a great question because... Um, so in the study that we were just discussing, we our sham condition was the person laying immobile, mm-hmm. and it made their spasticity worse. Mm-hmm. In our whole body vibration studies, um, the intervention consists of the person standing up for 45 seconds on the whole body vibration platform, then sitting down for a minute and resting. Standing up and sitting down and standing up and sitting down. And we do it that way because a lot of our participants are not able to stand for long periods of time. In this this case, our sham condition is having sham electrical stimulation on the legs and standing up and sitting down, you know, the same way that the people who are getting whole body vibration while they're standing are doing. They're not just they're just they're standing on the same platform same position and they're just not getting vibration they're standing and that the, the sham condition actually has seems to have a meaningful effect on spasticity as well which really shows the value of movement whether it's the passive movement that we were talking about before or active movement now the relative value of active versus passive movement we haven't looked at and I think that's a very valuable question but I think it comes down to the importance of afferent input that is associated with movement and how that really helps to control spasticity. And one of the points that I tried to make this morning that I hope was clear was, you know, when we think about spasticity, we're typically talking about neurologic populations. So not only do they have the problem of the neurologic condition, but they also are much less mobile than non-disabled people are and just that immobility really contributes to their spasticity so if we can find a way to get them to be more active then that will go a long way to reducing spasticity
0: yeah you also mentioned uh uh, immobilization of the ankle in normals yes that changed their reflex behavior yes absolutely
1: yes yeah there was a great study from um Lundby. Hmm. The senior author was Jens Bo Nielsen. He's uh, he's in Denmark at the um, uh, University of Copenhagen. And they did a study on non young 20-year-old non-disabled individuals where they immobilized the ankle for two weeks. And they showed that right after the immobilization, their Reflex activation looked just like you'd see in someone with spasticity. Amazing. You know? Yeah. And then after two weeks of just moving around normally, you know, it recovered. But it just shows the the impact of activity on the neuromodulation.
2: It's a silent plug for a hashtag choose PT. <laughs> um, Not so silent. I know, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, pull this question back to um, the... Doctorate for transcribers. Um, when you spoke earlier of the Miami Project, which is an incredible program and initiative, um, there are some people that are not familiar with it. Could you speak to the Miami Project a sure. little bit more? Sure.
1: Yeah, so the Miami Project to Cure Paralysis is a center of excellence at the University of Miami, Miller School of Medicine, and it was started as an initiative when. Um, Mark Bonacani was injured as a college student playing for the Citadel in the 80s. And his father, Nick Bonaconi, was an NHL, NFL, sorry, NFL. I <laughs> 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 That's my sports, uh, uh, my knowledge of sports. So he was an NFL Hall of Famer. And um, he said, ah, you know, we'll get a bunch of money together and we'll cure it in a year and you'll be up and walking. You know, and so he pulled all his... Sports buddies and Hollywood colleagues in, and they you know don't made a big donation to develop the center and um, they really made an effort to try to identify a cure for spinal cord injury and um, it's now been the Miami Project has now been in existence for more than twenty five years, and I think they've made some very very valuable contributions to the literature uh, related to the basic um, the basic disruptions that happen in the spinal cord and how we might be able to go about addressing them in a way that restores the spinal cord circuits. But, you know, it's such a complex problem. And um, I think there's a lot of things that are potentially promising. But right now, today, the thing that we know from the literature, from a systematic review, in fact, that was done by one of my former PhD students, Joyce Gomez-Osman, she did a systematic review of the literature of all the studies that have tried to improve motor function in people with spinal cord injury. And essentially what she showed is that the, the best evidence for the value of intervention comes from those studies that had a rehabilitation physical therapy component to it. So even if you find the thing that's going to be the cure, if you don't combine it with physical therapy and rehabilitation, you might not even see an effect. Mm-hmm. And I think the animal literature supports that as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. So not only are you an excellent researcher, but you have been very involved in the neurology section now, the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. So uh, your current position is as editor-in-chief, and we'll come back to that in a second. But uh, tell me about how you first got involved. Who recruited you into the yeah. activities of so the section? Yeah, so that's a great question. I
1: haven't thought about that for a long time. So um, I actually um, st- started learning about the neurology section when I was a Ph.D. student, and I, I joined the neurology section, so I was doing work in animals. And I read this, I read an article on um, disuse versus denervation atrophy in spinal cord injury. And I was studying spinal cord circuits in turtles. And I never had thought about I just, I mean, now it just seems like, of course. But I never had thought about it that way. And it made such a difference to my way of thinking about what was trainable, which would be the disuse atrophy, and what was not trainable, which would be the denervation atrophy. And that really got, piqued my interest in what was going on uh, in, with the neurology section. And then I started coming to the meetings, and David Brown, who at that time was chair of the research committee, recruited me to the research committee. And so I served, after he completed his term, I served as chair of the research committee, and then I got ran for treasurer. Of the neurology section, now Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, and I was the treasurer for several years when I was tapped to be the editor of JMPT. So it's been wow, it's been a lot of years now. Because <laughs> <laughs> I believe Kathy Sullivan
0: was president when yes. you took on that position. Yes. So what was the vision at that time from Kathy for the section,
1: um, if you recall? Yeah. So well, I think that Kathy had. So it was at that time that we moved from what you, what I typically think of as the officers, you know, the president, secretary, treasurer, nominating committee. I guess nominating committee is actually not an officer. I know I'm missing one. President, secretary, treasurer, vice president.
0: Yeah.
1: And then um Kathy had the a vision of having, you know, director of communication, director of education mm-hmm. um education. Um, director of research, research. Mm-hmm. and that really, I think, helped expand the leadership manpower, you know, because everyone then had an important role that was beyond their role as being an officer, and that really made a difference, I think, to the growth of the academy.
0: And it continues to grow, I yes, think. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, it yeah. just, you see this blossoming of leadership in the SIG levels and in the committee level. And yes, absolutely. Really made a huge impact as our section continues to grow
1: also. Yes, absolutely.
0: So what was your vision for the... the um, was it the Neurology Report? It was...
1: Well, so when I... So Judy Deutsch, who was the mm-hmm. Editor-in-Chief before me, she had the vision to change the name from the Neurology Report to the, the Journal of Neurologic Physical Therapy, which is really a brilliant move because it really told the world what we do, you know, that this is neurologic physical therapy, that that's a thing, and we have a journal. (laughs) With a spine. With a spine, (laughs) exactly. That's exactly right. Uh So my, I mean, my um, real goal when I first early came on was at that time we did not have an impact factor. And um, so my first goal was to try and figure out what does it take to get an impact factor, and then once we have an impact factor, what do we do to make sure that that impact factor is as strong as it can be? And the reason that's important is because very often people who are wanting to submit their very best work, they want to know that it's going to make an influence on the field, And one index of the influence on the field is how highly are the articles in that journal cited, which is essentially what the impact factor is. I do think that JMPT is kind of in an unusual situation in that not only do we have an obligation to move the scientific component of our field forward by making sure we publish the very best articles that are highly likely to be cited, and increase the reputation of the journal through the impact factor. But we also have the need to serve our clinical community, who wants to be informed about what does the, liter- the research say about things that are valuable for moving practice forward. So we have really strived to um, keep our eye on the impact factor, but not let that be the only thing that guides us. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, during your tenure, uh, is that when we became a a part of CINAHL, or was that part of Judy? Um, Judy.
1: So, Judy was the one who got us indexed in Medline, and but was, uh, yeah.
0: Oh, you were right. Oh, Man!
1: (laughs) So that was a big, that was also a very big deal, which Mm. is very important to the history of the journal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: Wonderful. When you're not researching, or traveling, or doing PT things, um, how do you spend your time? What do you enjoy to do?
1: I edit the journal. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that will be that will be handed off to
1: George. George, well, Folk. I act. I yeah. mean, I, I don't. I say that kiddingly, but I really. I mean, it's it's kind of like my hobby. I yeah. really enjoy that very much, and I I just value so much all that I've learned in being an editor and the people that I've met in that editor role. And I really, I mean, I look. I spend a lot of my weekends doing those those editing things, and. In many cases, editing things that nobody ever sees mm-hmm. because they are comments that are going back to thing to authors that are not ever not going to be published mm-hmm. in the journal. I mean, so we have um, around 300 submissions a year, and we have space for 24. So you know, we have to be very judicious about how we use that space allocation of our pages, and and I but I really enjoy the editing process, and you know finding a way to educate the um, author about how they might make their submission more useful, even if it's not going to be in JNPt. And I also enjoy the relationships that have come out of that, you know, with people who submit to the journal. I mean, I I was having a discussion when I first arrived. Uh, I just met um, for a drink can i say that <laughs> with a with a, a more junior colleague who um, who i think has really made is really going to be one of our future stars and she had an article that she had submitted to the journal that was desk rejected which means it comes in i read it or i send it to an associate editor to read it and then we say you know this is really it's it's not we're not going to be able to consider this, and um, she and she's a valuable part of our academy community. So I, I always felt really bad, especially when it's someone who's a valuable part of our community. And she reached back out to me and she said, I want to have a conversation with you to really understand, you know, um, the journal priorities and why this because we've had they'd had other things published, and that whole dialogue was so valuable. Um, as part of the mentorship and um, mm-hmm. so when we got together she was saying you know how much she appreciated having that mentorship even though it wasn't from one of like the colleagues that she typically thinks of mm-hmm. as part of her mentorship team
2: where do you find your inspiration to write um, remind me of it's not it's like a word from the editor, but it's oh editor's it's, note. Editor's note. Yeah. Where do you find your inspiration to write the editor's note at oh, the beginning? Okay. of the Oh, that's a great trail? question.
1: So um, it really depends. It's usually You're, something oh, so good
2: because I, <laughs> I remember it, We don't have. We're gonna delete this.
1: But <laughs> I remember
2: emailing you years ago because you wrote one that was just so good, and it was oh, I can't remember the title, but I printed it out. And I put it because it was just so good because it just, like, really captured what the journal at that time was trying to, um, like, the topic of the journal at the time. Um, And you just kind of wonder, are they things that just wake you up in the middle of the night and you're like, you know what, I think I want to write about that? Or is it you trying to tie in with the theme of Well,
1: yeah, thanks for that. I I have to say that most of the time they come from discussions with colleagues. PT colleagues, non-PT colleagues, about things that are controversial or things like, "Really, that's what you think about that?" You know, and it feels like that would be something that would be useful for our community to expand upon or to consider or to, you know, to have a different perspective on. So, it usually comes from conversations with colleagues. Mm-hmm.
0: So, what excites you about the future of
1: neurologic physical therapy? So, I. Believe that we are on the cusp of really having our non PT colleagues value what we do not only as clinicians but also as scientists. I have colleagues who are uh, do cl- preclinical work in animal models, and um, they are so they have really come to understand how the point that I was making earlier that Activity and training and um, use-dependent plasticity are critical for any neurologic condition that we're talking about, no matter what level of the nervous system you're studying, if, if, it's a, if it's a preclinical model up to the human model. And I think that that opens the door for us for so many partnerships in the future, mm-hmm. and which will really have the potential to benefit people who have neurologic conditions of, of any kind
0: Excellent. so with you pursuing your uh, your passion in neurologic physical therapy and reading the journal on the weekends or <laughs> editions, um, does this have an impact on your family
1: so uh, so I have a textbook that's a great question I have a textbook that came out you know gosh it's like a decade ago now and in the foreword of that textbook I talk about you know how this textbook was written during the time that I otherwise would have been spending with my family, and how I am indebted to them for you know giving me this time. And so I really you know have tried as much as I can to make sure I find that balance, but um, but I but I also am very grateful to them for you know giving me that time to pursue that passion. I have a story related to that. So the textbook came out in 2009, which means, you know, textbooks take years to work to write. It's mm-hmm. like 300, 600-page textbook. I don't remember the page numbers at all. Actually, mm-hmm. <laughs> I should look that up. <laughs> <laughs> It was like 24 chapters, and each chapter was written by an expert in their field, so it took a lot of coordination. I wrote a couple chapters myself, so I you know, was working with my collaborators. And so it came out in 2009, which means I was working on it from about 2006 to 2008 at least. So my son was like five when I started it, and he was like eight or nine when I finished it. And, you know, we had this big party. I had a lot of colleagues at the Miami Project who contributed chapters. We had a big dinner where we celebrated the release of the book and blah, blah, blah. And then in 2009, I became editor of JNPt. So I, you know, I'm working on this journal and spending lots of time on the journal. And about two years into it, my son said, Mom, You've been working on that journal forever. <laughs> Is it ever going to be published? <laughs> That's great. Out of the frying pan and into the fire kind of thing. like, Well, funny thing about that." <laughs> when are we going to have the party yeah.
0: annually? Yeah.
1: Annually. Hmm. <laughs>
0: Well Eddie, I really appreciate you taking the time well we really appreciate yes. you taking the time and meeting with us today and congratulations on your successes well, thanks and to the, um, the spinal cord injury rehabilitation book, uh, which is a valuable resource and for you sharing your thoughts with us today
1: well I really appreciate your interest and it's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you great, great thank you Thank you guys that was fun yeah. Yeah.